This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're looking this morning at verses 18 through 25. We continue our series of studies in 1 Peter. Looking at chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, hear the word of God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by that truth as we study it this morning. Father, we pray you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things that you have for us in your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. When Peter begins to address servants, and the word refers to household servants who would have been slaves, but who served in a household context, He is continuing teaching that he began uh, back actually in verses 11 and 12, where his concern is that Christ's people behave in such a way that makes them a credit to the society in which they live. He does not have in mind our compromising the righteousness to which we are called, but rather insofar as even the pagans have their own standard of what is praiseworthy or what is commendable, that we should fit in with that insofar as we are able. And then last week we saw uh, in verses 13 through 17 
that uh, one way that that plays out is in our relationship to the society of which we are citizens, our relationship to the government that the Lord has placed over us. Peter wants Christians to put to the lie the idea that somehow they are a detriment to the society in which they live. Well, he continues to apply that same teaching in various arenas, and with this verse, he begins to apply that same idea to households. Now, today he mentions servants. Uh, In weeks to come, we'll see he refers to wives, he refers to husbands, and then he just speaks more generally. But for this week and next, Lord willing, we're looking at what Peter has to say to households. Now, there's a lot of background in this. You know, households generally conceive servants as well as the, the married couple. A lot of background here because the ordering of households was a, was a, was a extremely important and often discussed topic in the Greek and Roman world of the first century as well as before and after. In fact, there were many philosophers and writers who had comments and instructions for the right ordering of households. People like Plato and Xenophon and Aristotle and Seneca and others uh, wrote extensively about what the well-ordered household looked like. And the reason they did, they knew something we don't seem to understand today, and that is as the household goes, so goes the the, uh, society. They knew that. And so for them, a rightly ordered household was important, not so much for the sake of the household, but for the sake of society. And so they had a great deal to say about it. And that's why uh, you see in Peter's letter here, as well as in Paul's letters, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, he addresses households. Now, yes, he does so, and Peter does so here, because it's important internally for the, for the household to function well, to function in a Christian way. But we do need to note that there is an apologetic element, a defense uh, aspect to this, that uh, in some ways they expected to hear instructions about households, and, and so that's what Peter delivers here. However, they, while he does meet social expectations, while as Christians we too have something to say about the right ordering of households, he does so from a specifically Christian Point of view. He writes to those uh, who are in Christ and who they are as servants of the household, uh, members by extension, or even at the very core of the household, the wife, the husband, uh, not just from a secular view, but who we are as Christians influences how we behave, how we function in those roles. But it's not only that, uh, as Paul writes and as Peter writes here, He addresses especially slaves, wives, with a dignity that was often missing in the secular, in the pagan culture. Uh, In fact, with slaves, Aristotle, you know, we, we think of Aristotle as this enlightened paragon of ancient Greek wisdom, right? Well, listen to what Aristotle says about slaves. There can be no friendship nor justice toward inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox. Nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. 
A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Now remember, Paul comes along and talks to masters and slaves and says, you know, slaves, submit to your masters. Masters, don't be harsh with your slaves, but reckon each other, regardless of that relationship, as brothers in Christ. Yes, they do have a relationship. Yes, they do have something in common. You see, Paul takes that and and transforms it into a Christian point of view. And wives, women have often criticized Paul or hear Peter about being in submission to their husbands. Do you realize the very fact that Paul or Peter addresses wives is an immense conveyance of dignity? Because in the secular writers, they wouldn't address them. They would not address slaves. They were unworthy of being spoken to. They wouldn't address wives. While they were better than slaves, they were still women. They would address the husbands, and the husbands were to tell their wives how they ought to behave. You see, Paul and Peter, merely by addressing wives, and certainly by addressing slaves, gives to them a dignity that was, that was unknown in the surrounding culture. Rather than a put-down, these were extremely elevating. And we need to recognize that as we see them in their context. Uh, what is going on here? Giving new value, new dignity, new importance to servants, to wives, as well as to the uh, the husband or the master. Now, notice what he says. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle. You know, we could see how a servant would respond well to a master who is kind, who is gentle, who treats his, his servant reasonably. But he says, also to the unjust. Now, I like the ESV, but I think they sort of miss it here. Because the word that Peter uses is a word, our word scoliosis comes from. In fact, it's almost exactly that word. Anybody know what scoliosis is? What is it? Curvature of the spine. Yes, some of you may suffer from scoliosis. It's a, it's a crooked spine. Well, what the word he uses here is referring to masters who are not so much unjust, though that could be a part of it, but who are perverse, who are crooked, who are unreasonable, who are cruel, who are harsh. Not only those who are good and kind, but those who are just perverse. Those with whom it's impossible to get along. They may be unjust, but they may also be a lot of other things, including harsh, cruel, unreasonable, thick-headed, whatever it might be. You know, how can I submit to this person? How can I serve this person? Now, most of you are not household servants, so you may feel that way sometime. That's not your standing in life, per se. Uh, what does this have to say to us? Well, a great deal. Uh, because as you'll notice, Peter quickly leaves the subject of servants and just begins to speak generally about how we live in a situation where we are persecuted where we are mistreated in a, in a perverse, in a cruel, in a harsh, in an unreasonable way. This may come from an employer. It may be your boss. It may come from a husband or wife, particularly if that person is an unbeliever. It may come from a classmate in school. It may come from a neighbor, someone who, despite the fact you've done nothing to them, in fact, maybe you've done things for them, treats you in a condescending or abusive, or harsh, or cruel, or unreasonable way, especially if you are for being a Christian. 
And, and yes, people will dislike you simply by virtue of the fact you are a Christian. It happened to Jesus. It's going to happen to you. We know that. The Bible tells us that. So what Peter is saying here, by extension, yes, has to do absolutely <clears throat> with every one of us. As he himself recognizes by expanding this whole theme of, as believers, be, being willing to suffer unjustly. And that's what we want to look at here. Now, we can endure suffering, especially unjust suffering. And Peter gives us two reasons here. Uh, why we can do that, that help us to do that. The first one, God sees us. Simple enough, right? God's watching. God sees us. Look at verses 19 through 20. Verses 19 and 20. Note what he says here. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We get to the very end of that section, but Peter reminds us we live, uh, as the Latin expression is, coram Deo, before God, before the face of God. God sees us. God watches us all the time. And so we need to be conscious of that. Uh, now notice... When he says that, he's indicating that these things that happen to us and how we respond to them are not unnoticed by God. And they're not just random things that, that happen to us. In fact, God is sovereign, right? I mean, one way or another, it is God's will, God's purpose in our lives that these things come our way. And so we recognize that we live in the sight of God. And because of that, as he says back in verse 19, we live... We, we live in a way that is mindful of God. Um, literally, he says, he brings the word conscience in with, with, our, with a conscience toward God. So we could say we are aware that God sees us, God is watching us, and we, on the other hand, want to live in a way that means we are conscious of or maintain a good conscience toward God. Because these things don't happen in the dark. They don't happen apart from God. He watches. He sees. He knows. And so as the ESV renders it, we are mindful of God. We, he, we recognize he sees us. We are conscious of his gaze. And we recognize that everything we do is ultimately done with reference to him. What pleases him? What is in accord with his will? What is in accord with his commandments to us? What pleases God? Well, what does not please God is that you endure it well when you suffer for doing something wrong. Notice in verse 20, what credit is it, Peter says, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Yeah, suppose the household servant steals something and the master is very upset with him and he's punished for it and he endures it well. Well, you know, we think, well, yeah, you had it coming. You know, that's you got what you deserve. There's nothing in that, but notice what pleases God is when we willingly endure suffering for having done nothing wrong, or positively for doing good, for living the way that we should. Verse 20 again, but if when you do good and suffer for it, remember that expression, do good, is one that Peter is particularly fond of. As we saw last time, it occurs in eight different places in the Bible uh, nine times in the New Testament, nine times, but twice in one verse. So eight different places it occurs, and four of those are in First Peter. So Peter is very emphatic on this point. You do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
Now, that's twice this expression has occurred, a gracious thing. Verse 19, this is a gracious thing. Uh, into verse 20, this is a gracious thing. What does that mean? Well, the word is the word for grace. But the word can mean more than just grace. It can mean favor. And perhaps a better way to understand it, a more clear to under, way to understand it, is, is Peter saying this is a commendable thing. This is a laudable thing. This is a praiseworthy thing. When you live without giving offense, when you actually live and do good to others, and yet they respond harshly, unreasonably, and you endure that patiently, that is a commendable thing to God. That is a thing that finds favor with God. Now, not righteousness in the absolute sense as a work that earns us points with God, no. But God, to put it a certain way, God is impressed with you. God is pleased with you. When through no fault of your own, you are suffering and you bear with it patiently. It is a commendable thing. It is a gracious thing is what Peter is saying here. And so the first reason he gives to us is that God sees us. God's watching. And we want to maintain our conscience before God. And so when wrong is done to us, we bear it patiently. We don't turn around and fling wrong right back. Now, we want to be careful that we don't over-apply. Peter is not saying you don't have a right to defend yourself if you are attacked. You don't have the right to defend your family or your children if, if you are under attack of some form. He's not saying that. What he's saying is simply, as you go about your lives as Christians, certainly trying not to give offense, trying not to do harm to anyone, and positively trying to do good, trying to serve, trying to be a blessing to people, and they respond with hostility by reviling you, insulting you, slandering you, that you don't then start on the warpath yourself and try to revile them and slander them and do harm to them. That's, that's what he's saying here. Because God sees us. God is watching. As he says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We live before the eyes of our God, and we want to maintain a good conscience for that. Now, to apply this a little bit more, that God is seeing us, God is watching us, there's a couple of uh, applications or, or uh, corollaries that flow out of that. Because God sees us, we leave justice to him. That's exactly what, what Paul is talking about back in Romans uh, chapter 12 in the passage that we read earlier. Um, he says in verse uh, 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Sometimes you may not be able to be at peace with somebody because they simply refuse to be reconciled. But that's why he says, as far as it depends on you, you've made every effort. You've done all you can. If the relationship is not reconciled, there's nothing more that you can do. But then notice what he goes on to say. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, Paul says actually just the opposite. Do good to them. He talks about heaping burning coals on their head, which is a reference to Proverbs. Uh, different interpretations of that expression. I think it simply has to do with making them, hopefully making them feel ashamed of how they've treated you, that they would burn with shame uh, when they've treated you badly and yet you respond with, with grace, with generosity, with goodness. But his, his point is summarized in 21. Don't be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. One way we are overcome by evil is when it causes us to become evil ourselves. But instead, we were to respond with the goodness, the mercy, the grace of God. And so we leave justice to God. Now, that takes faith. 
you know, I'd much rather get revenge and know it's done than leave it to God and wonder if it's ever going to happen, right? I mean, we have that thought. Or I want the personal satisfaction of getting revenge uh, because it sure would feel good to get them back. And I, I just don't know if God is going to do it or when he's going to do it. Well, it takes faith that God is going to make all wrongs right. And it takes faith especially because it may happen in this life. It often does. You know, as you, as you see the person who cuts you off deliberately and purposely and maliciously in traffic a mile up the road having been pulled over by the police, you know, you think, yes, yeah, so they got what's coming to them. Well, it does sometimes happen in this life, but it may not happen in this life. It may not happen until the world to come. It may not happen until they stand before God on the day of judgment. So it takes faith to believe that that day is in fact coming. It's also important because our sense of justice may differ from God's. We may be too harsh. We may not be harsh enough. You see, it's God who is the one who judges justly. But we also have to be careful here, even as we are aware that it is God's place to avenge, he will repay, that we watch our own hearts. That we aren't just saying, well, I hate that person. I can't wait until God gets them. Whenever that's coming, God's going to get them. I'm looking forward to that. We also have to be careful that we don't have a revengeful heart. Now, see, this is the hard part. This is the supernatural part. Because we want to pray for those who mistreat us. We want to love those who mistreat us. Isn't this what Jesus taught us, after all, in the Sermon on the Mount? Back in Matthew chapter 5, uh, when Jesus was speaking of this, this very thing in verses 43 through 48. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. Sends rain on the just and the unjust. What if you love those who love you, and what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Of course they love those who love them. You greet only your brothers. What are you doing more than other people do? Not much. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, it's not just enough being wait, uh, to, to wait for the Lord to avenge us, but we also have to watch our hearts and pray for that, that person who persecutes us. Because, you see, even as we recognize that, yes, they may burn in hell for their wickedness towards us, is that really what you want? Would it not be better that that person is one to Christ? And maybe they would be one to Christ through your prayers and through your acts of goodness in return for their acts of malice. You see, ultimately, we, what we want for them is not justice. It's grace. To recognize that they act as they do because they're dead in their sins, because they're under the power of the devil, and because they need, like we do, the redeeming work of Christ. Otherwise, what, what would make us any different from them, What do you have that you have not received, as Paul says? And so it's not enough merely to wait for the vengeance of God that we do that, but also to pray for them, to try to love them, to watch our own hearts, that we aren't overcome inwardly with the evil of vengeance and revenge. So that's the first reason Peter gives here, is that God is watching us. And so, yes, he knows what's going on. And ultimately, he will make it right. 
But the second reason that he gives here is that Christ suffered for us. Not only is God watching us, but Christ suffered for us. Look at verses 21 and following. Peter says here that Christ suffered for us, and as an example, he shows us how to suffer unjustly. Look at verse uh, 21, uh, where he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Christ is our pattern. The the word example actually uh, contains the word for a letter. Our word grammar comes from it, uh, or grammatical, something like that. And the word that Paul uses here, it means an example, but in its roots it refers to the idea of a copy book. And we use these when we were children. Maybe your children are using them now. Maybe you're using it right now, children. Where you see the letter... And you trace over it to learn how to make the letters, right? It's sort of there in the dotted lines, and you have to trace over the letter to learn how to make the letter. Or maybe it's written up above, and you copy the letter underneath. You have that pattern of the letter to follow. That's exactly what Paul is saying Jesus is for us. We look at Jesus, we see how he endured suffering that indeed was unjust, and we say that's how to do it. That's how we make our lives. That's the pattern we're to follow. He also uses the example simply of walking in Jesus' footsteps that you might follow in his steps. You know, the idea of just placing your feet where someone else's feet have gone, the idea of just following along behind them is here as well. So we see Jesus' example and we follow that pattern. So Christ suffered for us as an example showing us. And what does he show us? Well, verse 22 says he suffered blamelessly. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In fact, Jesus is the only person who truly has ever suffered unjustly. We may not have done something specific that warrants the abusive or malicious behavior we endure, but we have done things that that bring sin and its miseries upon us, right? Jesus never did. He never sinned. There was no deceit. There was no lie. There was nothing in Jesus that should bring any of the consequences of sin at all. And yet he suffered hell itself. The greatest suffering for absolutely no warrant in and of himself. So you you think you've suffered unjustly. Jesus has suffered more deeply, more unjustly than you or I ever will. And so, as an example, he suffered blamelessly. It certainly wasn't through anything he did. And he suffers here, and I struggled with the word for verse 23. He suffered passively. He suffered graciously. He suffered willingly. The point is, he didn't fight back. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He endured it willingly. He endured it without lashing out in return. And he suffered, as our example, he suffered trustingly. Look at verse 23 again. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Putting himself in his father's hands, trusting that his father would make it right. You see, that's exactly what we are to be doing. Well, Jesus did that. Jesus is our pattern. He suffered without blame. Well, he didn't bring this on himself or anything wrong he did. He suffered willingly or passively, uh, graciously, without lashing out in return. And he suffered trusting in the justice of his father. Boy, is that a pattern? Is that an example 
for us to follow. Well, yes, it is. He is our example. But notice also he suffered for us and as our redeemer in verse 24, he makes it possible for us to suffer unjustly. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Because you see what we're calling on ourselves to do here, what scripture calls on us to do here is not humanly natural. It's not even really humanly possible. Human nature wants to strike back. Human nature wants to get revenge. Human nature wants to make the other person suffer. You recognize that to forgive someone is to suffer the harm ourselves rather than making them suffer for it. Yes, you did me wrong, and I am going to, for Christ's sake, absorb that wrong, suffer that injustice, and I'm not going to make you suffer for what you did to me. That's to forgive. It's to absorb the wrong. Well, we can do that because Jesus died for us so that we die to sin and live to righteousness. We are new creations in Christ. We are different. We are otherworldly people. If you are a real Christian, you are citizens of heaven. What else does that mean other than we are unnatural, supernatural, be a better word, otherworldly That's how we can do it. That's why we can do it. Because not only do we have Christ's example, and Christ is an example in many ways, although not in every way. There are things Christ did I could never do. In this we can, but we can do it only because we not only have Christ's example, but we have his life in us. We've been changed. As shepherd, he protects us to suffer unjustly. Look at verse 25, and you'll you'll hear here the echoes of Isaiah 53. Peter's just drawing the language, the imagery from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Well, he says here in verse 25, You were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, we're not alone. We have a shepherd. We have an overseer. Jesus protects us even in the midst of our suffering. Now, that may mean that you suffer tremendously. You say, well, where is he? Well, ultimately, we recognize he's protecting our souls, that we will not be lost, that we might endure suffering in a way that pleases Christ, and that we return in a way that keeps a good conscience toward God. But he's our shepherd. He's our overseer. We're not alone. We are protected. We are being watched over, even in these things that are happening. So as our shepherd, he protects us to be able to suffer unjustly, because it's not all up to me. But then also notice in the last place, and with this we go back to the beginning of this section, as our Lord, he calls us to suffer unjustly. Look back at verse 21. It's easy to skip over this to get to the part about Jesus, but notice what verse 21 says, for to this you have been called. To what? To what have we been called? To suffer unjustly. You see, for the Christian, suffering of any kind, but particularly unjust suffering, is not an accident. It is, at least for a season or two of life, a calling. It is your vocation to suffer. It is a stewardship committed to you. It's no accident. It's the will of God for you. So we need to be good stewards of this calling 
when God calls you to suffer, whether it's from illness or something else, or maybe suffer from the harm, the effects of someone's malice toward you, you need to be a good steward of it. You need to serve God well in it, and you need to gain all that God has for you from it. Because you see, if you think of it as a calling, it transforms the thing entirely. It's not an accident. It's just not, it's not something to just be gotten through as quickly as possible. But it is a stewardship committed to you by the Lord. And the question is, how will you manage that stewardship? How will you serve God in it? And how will you gain from God in it? I want to close with this. Several years ago, John Piper wrote um, an, an excellent article when he was diagnosed with cancer. The, the title was, Don't Waste Your Cancer. And his concern was that he would be so interested in getting healed and getting better and getting treated and getting this behind him that he would not reap the fruit that the Lord had for him in this experience of fear, of suffering, of uncertainty. And then sometime later, uh, Marvin Alasky in World Magazine kind of did a takeoff on that and just made it more general. He, was, he had heart trouble, and he sort of applied what Piper taught to his situation. Well, what I want to do... <clears throat> and kind of in that same spirit, with apologies to John Piper, is just take what he wrote, ten, ten points that he developed some, I'm just going to give them to you as bullet points, uh, entitled, Don't Waste Your Suffering, Unjust or Otherwise. This is what he says. Number one, you will waste your suffering if you believe it is a curse and not a gift. If you believe it is a curse and not a gift. Number two, you'll waste your suffering if you believe, if you do not believe that it is designed for you by God. If it is designed for you, if you do not believe it is designed for you by God, custom fit for who you are and where you are. Number three, you'll waste your suffering if you seek comfort from thoughts of vengeance rather than from God. That's fun to think about how you're going to get them back, right? You'll waste your suffering if you spend all your time seeking comfort from thoughts of vengeance rather than from God. Number four, you'll waste your suffering if you refuse to think about death. You know, those who suffered from the hands of others to the point of death. Number five, you'll waste your suffering if you think that beating it means getting even rather than cherishing Christ. You're reflecting on the one who suffered unjustly in a way far more dire and painful and unjust than you ever will. Number six, you will waste your suffering if you spend too much time reading about suffering and not enough time reading about God. Number seven, you will waste your suffering if you let it drive you into solitude instead of deepening your relationships with manifest affection. Do you find comfort in the communion of the saints when you suffer for being a believer? Number eight, you will waste your suffering if you grieve as those who have no hope. We certainly have hope, both for this life and for the life to come. Number nine, you will waste your suffering if you treat sin as casually as before. After all, you're on the receiving end of some pretty serious sin. And then finally, number ten, you will waste your suffering. If you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and glory of Christ. That really gets back to Peter's point here. Our reputation with outsiders. This is why he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, 
not only to the good and gentle, but also to the perverse, the crooked, the harsh, the cruel, the unreasonable. Why? Not because it feels good to do that, but because of the good witness born to Christ. You will waste your suffering if you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would so work in us that in suffering generally, and in this particular form, Lord, of suffering from those who are harsh or cruel toward us, that we would respond in a Christ-like way. Father, it is not in us. Our first instinct is to get even. And yet, Lord, we pray that we would be able, by your grace, to follow the example of Christ because we have in us the life of Christ. Increase our faith, Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.